Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray as we're opening it up that you would speak to us and that you would uh, just speak deeply into our hearts. God, uh, help us to, just as we're diving into a just an incredible passage of scripture. Help us to receive what you want to say to us tonight. I pray that we would um, be encouraged, be challenged, and be drawn closer to you through them. And it is in your name that we pray. Amen. So Wednesday nights, we're going through the Bible at roughly a book a week. Last week, uh, we were supposed to go through the whole book of Daniel, and we ran out of time. So this week, we're finishing up the book of Daniel. Um, and we've said it a half a dozen times this year. We'll keep saying it throughout the year. Uh, what we're doing on Wednesday nights is the same thing that we're doing on Sunday mornings. It's a great supplement to a personal uh, relationship with the Lord through the Word of God. It is not going to replace it. It's not going to make up for the lack of it. It's like a, uh, it's like vitamins or vitamin pills or whatever. You know, uh, they're great. And if you're on a healthy diet, vitamin pills are a I presume, uh, a great means of sort of furthering that journey. Um, but vitamins are not going to make up for a diet of Big Macs uh, or Whoppers or whatever your fast food choice is. Uh, there's, they are a great supplement. They're not the substance. And, and uh, we come together to study the Word collectively to be equipped and, and to really hear what the Word is saying, but it's supposed to be a part of what we're doing on our own. And, and if we're not in the Word privately, then uh, we're going to get much less out of it in the public context. So be that as it may, uh, we're going to be in the second part of Daniel tonight, chapters 7 through 12. I said last week that Daniel is really prophecy and history, and they don't divide perfectly. And what that means is in the first half, it's history with a little bit of prophecy, and in the second half, it's prophecy with a little bit of prophecy. Um, so tonight we're going to be looking at prophetic scriptures. We're going to be looking at prophecies that were given to Daniel. And um, from our vantage point, probably about 2,500 years later, some of them are fulfilled and some of them are unfulfilled. And so it can be tempting to look at this and feel like, oh, we're reading sort of a news article of, of a piece of history and a little bit of prophecy. And we're not. What we're reading is what was delivered, what was given as future events, what was given as a prophetic utterance from the Lord to Daniel. And it's important for us to keep that in mind because the scriptures, uh, when we look at prophecy, we're doing a couple of things. We are looking toward the future, but we're also reminding ourselves of the faithfulness of God. And so if we just look at it like, wow, you know, this is this nice history thing or whatever, then we're going to miss all of that. We're going to lose sight of the, the depth of wonder that the prophecies should stir up in our hearts. And, and we need to remember that when Daniel was writing these things down, they were all future tense. Okay? So, why would we study prophecy? And I think this, we kind of elaborate on this, but one of the great reasons is because a huge portion of the scripture is prophecy. Somewhere around 25% of the Bible is prophetic. So, roughly one out of every four chapters in the Bible is about an event that either hasn't yet been fulfilled or at the time it was written hadn't been fulfilled. And so, really, if you're going to be studying the Word of God with any kind of uh, fullness, you have to study prophecy. You have to see what are we looking at, why is it here, why does it matter. And so, tonight, we're going to be totally doing that. Um, just for what it's worth, prophecy sometimes raises questions. It kind of can leave people feel... You know, like there's different viewpoints and all that. 
And if I say something tonight that either annoys you or you disagree with or confuses you or whatever else, I would be happy to try and clarify any statements I make. Uh, the quick little disclaimer is that I'm leaving here at 8 o'clock to go over to do community VBS and then I'll be back at probably 8.30, 8.40. So if you can sit tight, I'm happy to answer any questions. I just can't answer them right when we're done. Um, but as we're, as we're looking at the prophecies we're going to cover tonight, it's really helpful if we can remember what we talked about last week in Daniel chapter 2 when Nebuchadnezzar has a vision of a statue. And, uh, and Daniel says, these are the kingdoms that are going to come. And so there's, it's a statue. It's got a gold head. It's got a silver chest. It's got bronze uh, thighs. It's got iron legs and, and feet that are iron and clay. And then, Dan, and then the king sees a rock uh, cut it says, without hands, that smashes the statue and grows and fills the whole earth. And so what that vision was, it's a vision of the succession of kingdoms that will come. So the gold head represented Babylon, and we're going to get more and more into these. But if we can keep that in our mind that we're looking at, we have a picture of the way the empires of the world are going to go. All right? We've got the gold empire, the silver empire, the bronze, the iron, slash the iron and the clay, and then the rock, and the rock is Christ. Right? The final end of all world empires on earth is that we experience what's called the kingdom age. When Jesus Christ comes back down, he sets up his throne in Jerusalem. Satan's bound for a thousand years, and we get to live under the reign of Christ. All right, that, that's, when, that's the, the finale of this earth's history. And then after that, there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. But for this earth, that's the finale. That's going to be the final empire that we get to experience here. So if we can keep those things in mind, it's going to be really helpful for us. So... Starting out, we're going to start in Daniel chapter 7. If you're there, you're there. If you're not, you're not. Uh, but I'm there, so we're going to start there. In chapter 7, verse 1, it says, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. Then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts were coming up from the sea different from one another. The first was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A, man. a human mind also was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one resembling a bear. And it was raised up on one side and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And thus they said to it, Arise, devour much meat. After this, I kept looking, and behold, another one, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns." Daniel sees a vision of four beasts. And the first three are, are things that we can recognize or at least visualize. He sees um, a lion with eagle's wings. That's, you know, if that's, that's an image that's common throughout mythology, throughout pagan history. It's a great picture of strength and speed. And then he sees a bear. And he sees a leopard with four heads and four wings. And then he sees this beast thing. And he doesn't elaborate because it's not, he doesn't have a point of reference to say this is like something else. He just says it's a beast. But then going to verse 9, he says, I kept looking until thrones were set up and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow 
And the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat, and the books were opened. And then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. That's the horn coming up from the, the beast. I kept looking until the beast was slain, and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. So Daniel sees four creatures. And then at the end of that, he sees what? He says, the Ancient of Days took his seat. Who is that? That's the Lord. Daniel has a vision of four beasts coming, and then after the four beasts comes the Ancient of Days. And uh, his thrones ablaze with fire. The thousands upon thousands are attending to him, and the books were open. The books of judgment are open. And so what we're seeing is four kingdoms are coming for Daniel. Before the, before the Lord sets up his throne. Four kingdoms are coming. All right? And, and then comes the Lord. And this fourth one is distinct. And we're going to sort of just tuck that in the back of our minds. All right? Daniel is written like, uh, like a lot of Eastern literature. It's not written in this straight line narrative. Okay? It's not, here's prophecy A, and now this is all explained. Here's prophecy B, and now it's all explained. Here's prophecy C, and now it's all explained. It's a little bit more like, here's prophecy A, B, C, D, and F, and if you take prophecy W and sort of work it back in, you can connect some dots, okay? So bear in mind what we're looking at is we're seeing, in Nebuchadnezzar's vision, we saw gold, silver, bronze, iron, iron and clay, and then the final, the rock, which is Christ. In Daniel's vision here, we see what? The lion... The bear, the leopard, the beast, and the Ancient of Days. And it's important to just sort of keep that in mind. We're going to explain that in just a bit. But in Nebuchadnezzar's vision, you see like four to five. And in Daniel's vision here, he sees four. And then in both visions, the Lord sets up his throne. Okay? So, um, so then an angel comes. Daniel has, I think, more angelic interactions than any other person in the scriptures. Uh, he just, he sees his visions, like, what's that mean? And the angel zips in and says, well, Daniel, here's what it means. And uh, so he gets, that's chapter seven, all right? Chapter eight, he gets another vision. And it's a much more detailed explanation of these two middle kingdoms, these two beasts in the middle. So the first beast, or the head of gold in Nebuchadnezzar's vision, is the kingdom of Babylon. It's the kingdom of Babylon, headed by Nebuchadnezzar. It conquered most of the known world. It was incredibly wealthy. The second beast is going to be what's called the Medo-Persian Empire, or the Persian Empire primarily, because uh, it was an alliance, but the Persians were a much stronger of the two countries that allied themselves together. So it's still today referred to as the Persian Empire. And, and we're going to see, not we're going to, because we're going to skip over it, but if you, have to, if you can go through it slowly and unpack it, there's all these little details that feel incredibly minute until you contrast it with the history of these empires and you realize it's incredibly accurate. So, you know, in the vision of the four beasts, when he sees the bear representing the Persian Empire, he says it's hunched up on one side. Why? Because the Medo-Persian Empire was much bigger on one side. He says it has three ribs sticking out of its mouth. Why? Because when the Medo-Persian Empire rose to power, it rose to power primarily by conquering three kingdoms around it. And that's what gave it its land and its power. It was a bear. The Persian Empire was famous for huge armies. 
They did not move very fast, but when they moved, you didn't stop them very well, right? Just like a bear. And so Daniel's given this vision, and you can think, oh, wow, that's cute. He's got, you know, the lion, the bear, the leopard, the beast. No, 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 no. Each one of these is very symbolic and, and is given to us, is really given to Daniel so that as, as the people who are going to come after him read these prophecies while they're being fulfilled, they're going to be encouraged, right? Prophecy, as it's being fulfilled, is meant to be an encouragement to the believers. It's meant for us to look at it and say, oh my gosh, that wasn't just like a casual reference. That's like the Lord actually knows what he's talking about. That's like the Lord's actually in control of the situation. And so, so chapter 8 then goes into an elaboration. He has a vision of a ram and a goat. And he says this ram uh, appears which has two horns. And the horns were long, but one was longer than the other. And I saw the ram budding westward, northward, and southward. This ram's a picture of the Medo-Persian Empire. And, if you, and so again, it's got two horns. Why? Because it was the Medo-Persian Empire. One horn was bigger. Why? Because the Persian Empire was bigger than the Medo side of the empire. All right? He says it was pushing westward, northward, and southward. Historically, when Persia expanded its empire, they didn't push east. So it's just, you know, he's not just giving us poetical metaphor. You know, there's north, south, east, west, whatever. No, no, no. This is very specific. Why? Because God is specific. God cares about details. And so when Daniel says, this ram was budding westward, northward, and southward, and no other beast could stand before him, he's describing, actually, what happened. And then he sees a goat in this vision. And the goat, it says, is moving across the land without his feet touching the ground. So in the vision, this goat is moving super fast, and it says he has a very prominent horn right in the middle of his forehead. And he hits... The ram and destroys the ram. And historically, look, when we realize the Greek Empire rose to power under one man, Alexander the Great. And he's, he was so dynamic and so powerful that we still reference him today. We still know about him, even if we don't know every detail about his life, right? He's a man who we still refer to. He's still an icon of world dominance, okay? When people talk about world leaders and world military leaders, it usually comes down to some sort of reference like Julius Caesar, Alexander, and Napoleon, right? These guys defined military conquest, and Alexander moved incredibly fast. He was like a leopard with four wings. Huh, what are the odds? And so, and then it says, once this goat basically conquers the world, the horn's broken off, and four horns come up. And Alexander died incredibly young. He was only in his 30s. He wasn't even 40 which we covered last week. Uh, he was in his 30s, and he died. And his kingdom was split four different ways. And so Daniel's seeing this vision that's going to play itself out with absolute historical accuracy. And we look at this, and, and for us, you know, there's a lot of details in chapter 7 and 8. And if we're not careful, we'll glaze over and be a little bit like, yeah, great, this is slightly repetitive, right? And who cares about goats and leopards and you know, bears with ribs sticking out of their mouth. Like, it's just not, it can feel a little bit uh, dull. But bear in mind that this was given as foretelling. This was all given as, here's what's coming, okay? Here's what's coming, and it was fulfilled incredibly, with incredible precision, with incredible accuracy, all right? And so part of this prophecy has been fulfilled, but part of it hasn't. And so for us today, we look at it and we say, huh, 
how should we interpret the prophecies that haven't been fulfilled? Well, we look as what we what? We can use a reference point, right? Daniel sees four beasts. These first three that we've seen were fulfilled with incredible precision. Maybe, just maybe, if God knew what he was talking about with the first three empires, maybe he knows what he's talking about with the fourth. And so we've got to keep this in mind as we're looking ahead. Chapter 9 says, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. What do we just say? Daniel, in the first year of Darius, is reading the book of Jeremiah. He managed, somehow or another, Daniel got a copy of the book of Jeremiah and he's reading it. 70 years after it's written. And he, sa- and he sees the prophecy that says 70 years are appointed for captivity. And he realizes we're coming up on the fulfillment of a prophecy of God. And so what does he do? He does not dump on God. Daniel proceeds to fast and pray and say, God, I am requesting that you fulfill your word. He's not demanding and telling God what to do. I was in a prayer group one time where a guy literally told God that his honor was on the line if he didn't uh, do something or save somebody. I don't remember what it was. I just remember thinking I, was, I hoped I wasn't standing too close. Because you don't tell God what to do, right? You don't tell God who he's supposed to be. You respond to who God is. And so Daniel here does not say, God, you said 70 years and it's 70 years. What are you going to do about it? Daniel prays and he says, God, we've sinned. My people have sinned. I have sinned. We don't deserve any of your grace. But we're asking for you to fulfill your word. Right? That is how we approach the Lord. Anybody who tells the Lord what he ought to do does not understand who the Lord is. You have not tasted uh, what C.S. Lewis described as the weight of glory. If you've tasted the weight of the glory of God, you do not tell God who he is. You ask God what he wants you to do, and then you do it. And so Daniel does that. Daniel, interestingly, is one of the very few characters in the Scripture who we have no record of any sinful thing that he did. Outside of Jesus Christ, there's only about two or three people who we have that in the Scriptures. Other than, like, you know, the names. who are, We just know nothing about them. But of the people who we actually know something about, Daniel's one of the only ones who nothing negative is said about him. But as he, read, as he prays, we have his whole prayer. Verse 5, he says, we have sinned. Verse 6, he says, we have not listened to your servants. Verse 7, he says, uh, righteousness belongs to you, O Lord, but to us, open shame. Verse 8, he says, open shame belongs to us. He says, we've sinned against you. We've rebelled against you. We've sinned against you. Daniel is very aware of his own sinfulness, and so he does not try and box God into a corner. He does not tell God what he needs to do, but he's asking God to fulfill his word. And that's the first half of chapter 9. The second half of chapter 9 an angel comes to Daniel and says, Daniel, when you started praying, the Lord said, go give some clarity to Daniel, all right? So, because Daniel's praying about, hey, we're at the 70-year mark, you know, when is this coming? You go explain to Daniel, the Lord said, what's coming down the pike. And so this angel comes to Daniel and he says, Daniel, verse 24, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So he says, there's 70 weeks appointed for your people and your city. You've got to pay attention to that part. It's a, it's a, it looks like a subtle detail, but it's super critical. Um, 
we covered this a lot back when we were in Nehemiah, and then we covered it on Easter Sunday, so we're not going to spend an enormous amount of time here. But basically, he gives a prophecy. He says it's going to be 483 years from the decree to rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah comes. And you can map it out historically. 483 years to the day from when Cyrus said, uh, go back and rebuild Jerusalem to when Jesus Christ rode into Jerusalem. 483 years to the day. Now, it's called the 70-week prophecy uh, because some translations put it as weeks. It really would be simpler and probably better translated as seven, 77s. Okay, so there's 69 sevens and that's the 483 years. And he says then, after that, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. Okay, so after Messiah rode into Jerusalem, what happened? He was cut off. And then the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now, in chapter 7, when he describes the beast, he says, you know, there's the beast, but it has these different horns, and there's one horn specifically that stands out. And so the horns, uh, if you take... When, when the Bible gives us pictures or, you know, metaphors and types in the Scripture, we, we compare them with other references in the Scripture to say, what's the best way to look at this? So the horns are symbolic of kings. And there's one primary king. So this final empire, it's an empire, but really it's going to ride on one guy. And he's referred to here as the prince who is to come. The prince who is to come is not Jesus. He's what's known as the Antichrist. He is as far from Jesus as you can get. He is anti-Christ. He's the he's, he's opposite. Okay? Now, the people of the prince who is to come so are going to destroy the city and the sanctuary. Who destroyed the city of Jerusalem? The Roman army. Alright? This, and this is where we look at prophecy and we say, okay, you know, we can just compare the prophecies we've seen fulfilled with the historical record and now we can look forward. So, who destroyed Jerusalem, the Roman Empire. So who are the people of the prince who is to come? The Roman Empire. And so when Daniel sees this final vision, this fourth beast, we are looking at some form or variation of a Roman Empire. All right? And, and even if you want to, you know, if you're looking at Nebuchadnezzar's statue, you say, how does that work? There's like five. Well, there's the iron, and then there's the iron and the clay. And they're similar, but not completely the same. And when we see prophecy fulfilled, we often see it fulfilled with a short-term and long-term fulfillment. So, you know, so who cut off, you know, the people uh, of the prince who was to come destroyed the city and the sanctuary? Well, that happened in 70 AD, right? The, the Romans destroyed Jerusalem. Um, but what's going to happen? What's going to happen at the midway point of the Great Tribulation is the the armies of the Antichrist are going to wage war against the people of God. They're going to attempt to destroy the holy city and the sanctuary. And so we're seeing a short-term fulfillment that's been fulfilled, and we're looking toward a long-term fulfillment. So we're looking, towards, we're looking at what's going to be coming as some sort of revived Roman Empire. Some people think that that's connected to the EU. Some people look at it and say it could very well be connected to the Roman Catholic Church because the Catholic Church is... A very powerful machine, and uh, notice I said the Catholic Church, not 
Catholics. There are a lot of phenomenal people within the Catholic Church who absolutely serve and love the Lord. But if you believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, which I emphatically do, then if every Christian within the Catholic Church is raptured out, there's still going to be a machine in place known as the Catholic Church. And some people look at that and say, that could really, in a lot of ways, be the Roman Empire, because it's still to this day called the Roman Catholic Church. And so, but, so we're not totally positive. It's, it's still prophetic. There's still a little bit of speculation, but we're looking at some form of a revived Roman Empire that's going to come. And then in verse 27, he, that's referring to the prince who's to come, the Antichrist, will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week he'll put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering, and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that's decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Okay, if we connect this with Revelation, because we interpret Scripture with Scripture. The Antichrist is going to rise to power. He's going to establish a one-world government. He's going to establish a one-world religion. And he's going to somehow make peace with the Jewish people for seven years. There's going to be a seven-year treaty. Halfway through that, he's going to march into the temple and desecrate it. And he's going to declare the treaty's off, the Jews are going to die. And he's going to break his covenant. And at that point, the Jewish people will have been thinking of him as their Messiah. And at that point, they're going to realize this is not our Messiah. And the Lord is going to use that to open their eyes to himself. The Jewish people have, by and large, completely rejected the message of Jesus Christ for 2,000 years. And so before the Lord brings final judgment on the earth, he's going to make sure the Jewish people have a full opportunity to really have their eyes open. And he's going to allow that to happen through this guy, desecrating the temple and breaking his treaty. All right, chapters 10 through 12. Uh, really go together in a chunk. And so we're going to put them together in a chunk. All right? Chapter 10, Daniel has a vision. He doesn't really understand it. And so he prays for revelation. An angel comes and comforts him and helps him uh, understand it. Great. Chapter 11. Chapter 11 uh, and chapter 12. Chapter 11 really should be 35 verses in your Bible. And, chapter, and verse 36 should start chapter 12. Because in chapter 11, Daniel starts giving a prophecy. All right? And we've said that prophecies often have a short-term and long-term fulfillment. And it makes perfect sense, really, because if the Lord is outside of time, he can describe a narrative. And if there's a little bit of a time break in the middle, or if there's a 2,000-year time break in the middle, it's, there's no disconnect. Right? Because he's outside of time, but as he's looking down, he can write it out. And so we cover this in Ezekiel with the prophecy that uh, talks about the destruction of Tyre, right? Nebuchadnezzar destroyed it, and then 250 years later, Alexander the Great came along and finished destroying it. And so we see this, uh, we see this kind of pattern in place in the scriptures. So verse 1 through 35, he's describing a certain thing, and then 36, he makes this little switch, and he goes from talking about... Um, a specific group of people and a specific guy to now a different person that he references as a king. And, and we can look, the first 35 verses are incredible historical detail. And if you go back and you look at the historical record, they are just phenomenally accurate. 
100% accuracy. Daniel describes the way the Greek Empire is going to be broken up. He describes the way that the portion of the Greek Empire that's in charge of Israel is going to have all this political intrigue and they're going to go back and forth with the king from another section of the Greek Empire and this woman's going to go over to marry this guy and then she's going to come back and then she's supposed to betray this guy but she doesn't. And it can be a little confusing if you read it but I would so, so strongly encourage you all to go... Uh, to go back on your own time and listen to a pastor named Damien Kyle teach through this. Damien Kyle is a pastor out of Calvary Chapel, Modesto. He's, I think, probably the greatest Bible teacher alive today. Uh, and I say that as somebody who's listened to a lot of Bible teachers in my life. No offense to my dad. Uh, Damien is just uh, a phenomenal teacher. He's super straightforward. He's incredibly clear. And I went back this week. I listened to him go through uh, as much of the second half of Daniel as I had time for, and it's super uh, enlightening. Okay, he's not going to try and impress you. He's just going to say, in his nice dry voice, uh, "This verse was fulfilled historically in this way when this person did this," and and it's incredible to listen to because we realize the absolute accuracy with which the Lord fulfills His word. Okay, so if you have time, because again, church is what it's a supplement. Right? It's not the substance. So you should be studying the word on your own. You should be referencing things on your own. You should be listening to other teachings on your own. I'm not saying you've got to listen to 40 hours a week of teaching. But I'm saying you should be seeking to grow in your understanding of the word of God. And so as somebody who's standing up here teaching, I think I would be uh, failing in, in my responsibilities if I didn't encourage you guys to listen to Damien Kyle teach through the book of Daniel. And I think you'll be incredibly blessed by it. But in verse 36, there's a shift, all right? And, and what, we, what we're going to see again, and we see it all throughout the book of Daniel, we see these contrasts with short-term and long-term. And so when Daniel's given this whole uh, prophecy in the first 35 verses, we see uh, specifically the rise of a man who historically becomes known as Antiochus Epiphanes. And he was a king descended from one of Alexander the Great's generals. He was over the nation of Israel for a while. And he, at one point in his reign, went into the temple and offered a pig on the altar to Zeus. He desecrated the temple. And so he becomes, in the scriptures, a type of the Antichrist. He's the short-term picture, and he's sort of a condensed version of what the Antichrist is really going to be like at the end of time. And so up to verse 36, it's talking about this guy, Antiochus Epiphanes, who's a historical figure in the past. And then in verse 36, there's a shift. And we start reading about this king doing things that Antiochus never did. And so we're looking at the Antichrist during the time of the Great Tribulation. And so he describes you know, him exalting himself to heaven. And then he goes uh, on and gives these details about how he's going to end and these different battles he's going to be a part of. And he's describing uh, the battle of Armageddon that's in the end of Revelation. And so that brings us to chapter 12, verse 1. Now at that time, the Mi Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise, and there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. So in Revelation 12, we're told Michael goes to war with the dragon. He goes to war with Satan, and Satan is cast out of the heavenly sphere down to earth. And at that time, there's an incredible persecution of the Jews. Incredible in the sense of just massive and awful, right? And it will make the Holocaust look like nothing. 
It will be worldwide. It will be absolute. He, but the Jewish people will be delivered. Which ones? Everyone whose name is written in the book. We're told in Revelation there's going to be two prophets who speak to the world for a period of years. There's going to be 144,000 Jewish evangelists. There's going to be an angel who comes out of the sky and declares to every person the gospel. All right? So the opportunity is going to be there. And every Jewish person whose name is written in the book is going to be rescued. They might still be martyred, but they will be rescued. And so, uh, so then he goes on and he says, As for you, Daniel, in verse 4, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. Many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. Daniel, some of the things that you're being told to write down here are just going to kind of be sealed. You're not really going to understand them until we're at the end of time. And one of the marks of the end of time is that people will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. It's an interesting little comment because in our day and age, what are two of the most defining features? It's not wealth. We've had that forever. It's not sin. We've had that forever. It's not global power or psychotic leaders or anything else. What is it? It's travel and knowledge. Earlier this year, I got on a plane in Louisville and flew to Los Angeles and flew back in less than 30 hours. Long story. But anyways, uh, you couldn't do that at any other point in human history, right? You can go to and fro. Any one of us who has an iPhone could pull up and answer the stupidest question you could ask yourself right now in probably less than a minute and a half because knowledge has increased. We're at the end of time, and what do we do with that? We comfort ourselves. We look to the Lord. We look to the security that we have in God to say, you know what? God is in control. He has fulfilled his word perfectly up until that point, and he's going to fulfill it to the end, right? We don't worry about it. We believe in the rapture of the church for a lot of reasons. Uh, in the 70 weeks prophecy, Daniel says, the Lord tells Daniel, this is for your people and your city. We're not Jewish and we're not in Jerusalem. The 70 weeks prophecy specifically pertains to the Jewish people. All right? But we are looking at it, we're studying it for the sake of growing in our knowledge of the Lord, growing in our trust in the Lord, growing in our ability to believe that he has shown himself faithful and he will continue to be faithful. And so like Daniel, we need to not tell God what he ought to do because of what he's done in the past. We need to request of God that he'll reveal himself to us more, that he'll help us draw closer to him. Right? That's what we get from the book of Daniel is we get an insight into the incredible supremacy of the Lord and we get the example of a man who's faithful enough and humble enough to receive it and act on it faithfully. Okay? So let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would uh, just send it deep into our hearts, that we would be impacted by it for your glory. So have your way with us now, Lord, and it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.